Chapter 30, Part 1 of Women's Suffrage and Politics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Women's Suffrage and Politics, The Inner Story of the Suffrage Movement by Carrie Chapman Catt and Nettie Rogers Scholler, Tennessee, Part 1. When on June 2nd, 1920, the United States Supreme Court rendered that, to suffrage, momentous decision that state referenda were not permissible, 35 states had ratified the suffrage amendment, 8 had defeated ratification. The final decision therefore rested with the remaining 5 states that had not yet taken any action. These states were the northern states of Connecticut and Vermont, and the southern states of North Carolina, Florida, and Tennessee. The poll of the legislatures of North Carolina and Florida indicated an adverse majority, so of course these states were expected to take adverse action in accord with the remainder of the South. This limited the immediate prospects of the 36th ratification to Connecticut, Vermont, and Tennessee. None of the legislatures of these states was in session, so none could ratify unless its governor called a special session. Responsibility thus narrowed down to the governors of the three states. Temporarily, the case of Tennessee was dismissed from consideration because of an amendment in its state constitution which read, Article 3, Section 32, No convention or general assembly of the state shall act upon any amendment of the Constitution of the United States proposed by Congress to the several states, unless such convention or general assembly shall have been elected after such amendment is submitted. Florida's constitution also contains this provision. This provision of the Tennessee Constitution had stood unchallenged for half a century and was accepted as prohibiting a special session for the purpose of ratifying the suffrage amendment. There was no longer any doubt of the ratification of the amendment if it could be put before any one of the three legislatures of Connecticut, Vermont, and Tennessee. All were favorable to ratification and the general sentiment in these states was not only very friendly, but the Republicans in the one-party Republican states of Connecticut and Vermont and the Democrats in the one-party Democratic state of Tennessee were pledged to aid ratification. Yet the presidential election of 1920 was coming nearer and nearer with women's chance to vote in it hanging upon a 36th ratification and that ratification hanging upon a special session. It was believed that the governor of Tennessee could not call such a session. As has already been shown, the governors of Connecticut and Vermont would not. Feeling was tense and irritable throughout the country. Suffragists regarded the situation with the amazed irascibility of a plaintiff given a verdict by a jury, but with the judgment mysteriously and suspiciously withheld. A more surprising manifestation came from hundreds, if not thousands, of women who had taken no part and had shown no especial interest in the campaign for suffrage, but who now developed a more raucous attitude toward the delay than did the better disciplined suffragists. Women whose sympathies with the suffrage struggle had never been apparent now because the 36th state was not more speedily achieved even went so far as to throw bitter invective at suffragists who had given the whole potentiality of their lives to the cause. There were other causes of irritation. After the ratification of the 35th state on March 22nd, political leaders had concluded that there would be a 36th state and that millions of women would vote in November. The prediction had been widely heralded that these new voters might turn the scale in the coming election, and in consequence a hectic effort to enroll them in advance had been made by all parties. 
suffragists, non-suffragists, and anti-suffragists had been appointed to official posts and the first duty assigned to them had been the organization of the coming women voters. Although hosts of women flocked to the organizing meetings, many declined to be organized as voters before they had attained that dignity. National chairmen of the political parties were harassed on the one hand by suffragists and their state party organizations, who entreated them to use every possible effort to find a 36th state, and on the other by women anti-suffragists and a powerful party minority threatening a variety of disasters where that state found. Two considerations tipped the scale suffrageward. One, that the politics of the 36th state might easily be a determining factor in the coming presidential election. The other, that if there should be no 36th ratification, each dominant party would be held blamable and the premature organization of women might prove a boomerang. It was in the midst of this impasse that the Supreme Court handed down its decision. It validated all the ratifications already effected, cleared the amendment of legal doubt, and emphasized the fact that completed ratification required the action of only a single state. Immediately, a fresh campaign to persuade the two northern governors to action was begun, and the Republican Party left no stone unturned to persuade them to call special sessions, but neither would budge. It left the Republicans, whose majorities in Congress had submitted the amendment and whose proportion of the state ratifications was the larger, seemingly unable to deliver the 36th state. Meanwhile, Democratic hopes had turned slowly but steadily to Tennessee. Colonel Joseph H. Acklin, general counsel of the Tennessee Suffrage Association, on May 11th had published an opinion in the Nashville Banner declaring that should the Supreme Court of the United States hold that ratification of federal amendments may be accomplished only by the exact procedure outlined in the federal constitution, then Section 32 of Article 3 of the Tennessee Constitution would be abrogated and a called session could legally ratify the suffrage amendment. The opinion attracted little attention at the time, but it convinced the women of the state auxiliary of the National Suffrage Association. That auxiliary was now known as the Tennessee League of Women Voters. Its old title was the Tennessee Equal Suffrage Association. At their annual convention a week later, they discussed this situation and determined to be on watch. The decision clearly recognized and applied the principle that no state possessed the authority to alter or modify in any way whatsoever the method of amending the Constitution, and Colonel Acklin urged the Tennessee League of Women Voters to agitate the question of a special session. This the League lost no time in doing. Telegraphing to the headquarters of the National Suffrage Association for help, it turned its forces to the problem of converting the state press, the governor, and the legislature to the idea that the Supreme Court decision had made ratification in Tennessee possible. Its first appeal was made to the State Democratic Convention. The convention, with enthusiastic applause, carried a hearty resolution endorsing ratification of the amendment and recommending a special session. Armed with this resolution, the women requested the governor to call the legislature. The National Suffrage Association added its request, but he gave them no encouragement. There will be no extraordinary session of the 61st General Assembly, said he. I am forbidden by the Constitution of Tennessee to call an extra session of the legislature to act upon any amendment to the Constitution of the United States. That matter is delegated to the succeeding General Assembly. The agitation proceeded nevertheless. The Tennessean, the Chattanooga News, 
and the Tennessee League of Women Voters were simultaneously taking a poll of the legislature and from time to time publishing interviews with the legislators. On June 20, the governor, still believing that Tennessee had no authority to ratify, again declined to call a session. The newspapers were timidly discussing the possibilities of the session, the suffragists alone being confident. It was then that the chairman of the Tennessee Ratification Committee wrote the National Suffrage Association. Our only hope lies in Washington. In Tennessee, all swear by Woodrow Wilson. No one here believes he has clay feet. The Democratic State Convention on the 8th of June exhausted every adjective in our voluminous Southern vocabulary to approve, praise, and glorify his every word and deed. If he will but speak, Tennessee must yield. Inspired by our faith, the entire state board of the League of Women Voters, 32 women, signed a telegram to the president urging him to ask Governor Roberts to call the session and assuring him that the legislature would ratify if called. A copy of the telegram was sent to the National Suffrage Headquarters and with it a plea for more help. Through its Washington representative, the National American Women's Suffrage Association secured the intercession of President Wilson, who asked the United States Department of Justice to render an opinion to the Tennessee governor concerning the application of the Supreme Court decision to the Constitution of Tennessee. This was done within an hour by Assistant Attorney General Frierson, a citizen of Tennessee, and the following was made public by the White House in the afternoon, 15 hours after the telegram had been sent from Nashville. The ruling of the Supreme Court in the recent Ohio case, and the consideration which I gave to this question in preparing these cases for hearing, leaves no doubt in my mind that the power of the legislature to ratify an amendment of the federal constitution is derived solely from the people of the United States through the federal constitution and not from the people through the constitution of the state. The power thus derived cannot be taken away, limited, or restrained in any way by the constitution of a state. The provision of the Tennessee Constitution, if valid, would undoubtedly be a restriction upon that power. If the people of a state through their constitution can delay action on an amendment until after an election, there is no reason why they cannot delay it until after two elections or five elections, or until the lapse of any period of time they may see fit, and thus practically nullify the article of the federal constitution providing for amendment. On the same day, President Wilson telegraphed Governor Roberts, It would be a real service to the party and to the nation if it is possible for you, under the peculiar provision of your state constitution, having in mind the recent decision of the Supreme Court in the Ohio case, to call a special session of the legislature of Tennessee to consider the suffrage amendment. Allow me to urge this very earnestly. Governor Roberts had no prejudices per se against the special session, for on March 11th, he had announced that he would call a special session of the legislature when and if the amendment should be ratified by 36 other states in order to preclude the possibility of contesting elections in which women had voted without previous enactment of state laws relating to the payment of poll tax and registration. With the proposal of the president, supported by the Frierson letter, a new light was thrown on the political screen. The next day, June 24th, an elaborate opinion was handed the governor at his request by State Attorney General Frank M. Thompson, which declared that ratification of the suffrage amendment by a special session would be legal. The National American Women's Suffrage Association on June 25th gave to the public the opinion of Honorable Charles Evan Hughes, its counsel. In part, it said, 
The provision of the Constitution of Tennessee attempts to take away from an existing legislature of that state the authority to ratify the amendment as proposed by Congress for ratification by the legislature and to place this authority in a legislature subsequently chosen. This, in my opinion, is beyond the power of the state. In the adoption of the federal constitution, the state assented to the method of ratification by the state legislature without any such qualification, and the state legislature sitting as such after the amendment has been duly proposed by Congress has, in my judgment, full authority to ratify. Chief Justice Clark of the North Carolina Supreme Court volunteered a similar opinion. The widely published opinions of these high legal authorities of both dominant parties instantaneously changed the direction of expectation throughout the nation. Democratic presidential candidates sent drastic telegrams to the governor urging that Tennessee put an end to the uncertainty of the woman's vote. In response to combined entreaties, the governor announced that he would call a session, whereupon a long-drawn breath of relief swept over the nation. Newspapers carried the news that the Democratic state of Tennessee had come forward as the gallant rescuer of the befogged suffrage amendment. Cartoonists discovered a wide diversity of humorous features with which to carry the same message, and Tennessee, the perfect 36, became the talk of the hour. Democrats were exultant, Republicans exceedingly generous. The relief and joy in suffrage and political party headquarters were not, however, universal. The opposition had not given up hope and it now gathered its forces for the most terrific battle it had ever waged. That battle might have been a mere flurry had it not been for two unfortunate facts. First, the political situation within the state was the worst possible for united action on any measure, and second, the Tennessee League of Women Voters was ill-qualified at that particular date to take care of so serious a campaign. Tennessee had been a democratic state since the Civil War, although one-third of its legislature was Republican. The Republicans came mainly from the eastern mountain regions which had remained loyal to the Union in the Civil War and loyal to the Republican Party ever after. They were regarded by the majority party with frigid tolerance and the only time that there were Republican victories in the state was when there were rifts in the democratic forces. In one-party states, the normal party antagonisms practically cease, but the instincts for division reappear as factions in the majority party. In Tennessee, these factions within the Democratic Party were now at each other's throats. State citizens anxiously shook their heads, remembering a similarly bitter occasion when a shocking murder had resulted from a factional political quarrel. The prevailing fear that a tragedy might ensue or that the state might be thrown into the hands of the Republicans, tended to widen the breach as each group laid the responsibility for the gravity of the situation upon the other. A persistent rumor, untraceable to any definite source, ran through each faction to the effect that the Republicans, provided with unlimited funds, were making a deal with the leaders of the opposing faction. Suspicion, animosity, and uncompromising hate possessed the entire state, the governor was a candidate to succeed himself against two rival candidates. A whispering campaign of scandal involving the governor was traveling fast. Every person in the state was classified as for or against him. No neutrals were permitted, and when workers sent by the National Suffrage Association entered the state, they were regarded with suspicion, each side accusing them as favorable to its rival. The governor, obviously indifferent in his own feelings toward the question of women's suffrage, now found it an exceedingly troublesome issue. 
His political opponents alternately charged that he did not intend to call the extraordinary session, or if he did, that he and his friends could be depended upon to dish the amendment. Whatever the harried governor's personal impulse may have been, he was certainly much disturbed by these opposing conditions and weighed the question to call or not to call each day with varying conclusions. Many Tennessee women had been anxious to vote in the primaries on August 5th and might have done so had the session been called at once. The rival candidates' forces therefore scolded, threatened, ridiculed, and dragooned the governor in the effort to get him to call a special session, and they were without doubt not a little moved in their anxiety for early action by the hope that the scandal afloat would drive the new women voters into their camp. On the other hand, the governor's friends, recognizing that possibility, assured him daily that enfranchising the woman before August 5th would be equivalent to putting a weapon in the hand of his enemy with which to slay him. So suffragists and the opponents of suffrage in state and nation watched, waited, and grew wroth while embittered Tennessee fought her way to and through the primaries. Most unfortunately of all, perhaps, some of the leading Democratic women suffragists of the state had yielded to urging from their men and become involved in the political quarrel, some being arrayed on the governor's side, some on the other. Although the active and efficient chairman of the ratification committee of the state auxiliary to the National American Woman Suffrage Association was strictly neutral, the governor refused to deal with her on the ground that she belonged in the enemy camp. He appointed his own committee of women to work for ratification, with a former president of the Tennessee Suffrage Association as its chairman. Then he announced that he would call the special session for August 9, four days after the primaries. Meanwhile, the chairman of the governor's committee of women hurriedly began to organize and to take a poll of the legislature. At the same time, she appealed to the National Suffrage Association for official recognition of her committee. The Tennessee League of Women Voters had no objection to its one-time president, but she was not, at the moment, an officer. Other women were officers and responsible to their constituency for the success of ratification. These women found themselves in the curious position of having their official duty taken from them by the governor. He had summarily waved aside the organization which had produced the conditions that made ratification possible. As the Equal Suffrage Association, it had blazed the trail through the early gloom of Tennessee prejudice, and later had conducted without pause the agitation, education, and organization which had so largely converted the state to the justice of women's suffrage. At the moment, the local groups of the League, under direction of their congressional chairman, were engaged in getting the poll of the legislature. It was the usual routine with all auxiliaries of the National Suffrage Association, the principle being applied that the legislator was responsible to his constituency, and that they alone should solicit his voting pledge. Without the League and its many connections, ratification was dubious. The National Suffrage Association, dismayed at this unexpected tangle within its own forces, sent a representative to reconnoiter. A call upon the governor's staff confirmed the rumor that the chief executive was surrounded by a hostile group who not only did not want the session called, but would prevent it if they could. From both friends and foes of the governor, it was learned that the session was considered doubtful. The governor's tactical mistake in appointing an independent women's committee was recognized by his enemies at its full value, and the Tennessean, the leading newspaper in Nashville, had a series of editorials and cartoons in readiness with which it intended to lampoon him in relentless fashion. 
Perceiving that such an attack would arouse the governor's friends to urge the withdrawal of the promise of a session, the representative of the National American Women's Suffrage Association pleaded for delay in the publication. This was reluctantly granted. The governor was campaigning afield, but a dowdy leaguer, driving her own car, took the representative to the place of his next meeting. In a brief midnight interview, she pleaded for a compromise which would enable the recognition of both committees by the National Suffrage Association and by the governor. The plea was graciously granted and she returned to Nashville with the signed compromise in her pocket at 5 o'clock in the morning, having motored all night. The Tennessean would not accept the agreement. Then further delay was begged until the president of the National Suffrage Association could reach Nashville. This plea, too, was granted, and a hurry telegram was sent to New York. On June 15th, the president of the association, after 12 hours' notice, started for Tennessee, expecting to remain less than a week. But it was not until the comedy tragedy of the Tennessee ratification passed into history more than two months later that she was able to return. The Tennessean reluctantly withheld its planned attack upon the governor, and in an interview with the chief executive on Sunday, August 18th, between trains, the president of the National American Women's Suffrage Association assured him that the association recognized that ratification would be accomplished only by his aid and the aid of his followers in the legislature, that it was not interested in the local politics of any state, that it recognized the governor's right to appoint any committee he chose, but that it could not repudiate its own auxiliary. She pointed out that there were Republicans in the legislature and also Democrats of the opposing faction. She undertook to guarantee that the officers of the League of Women Voters would neither work for nor against him, but would give their undivided attention to ratification. From that moment, the national suffrage president served as a liaison officer between the governor and the suffragists and found the position most delicate and difficult. The National Suffrage Association knew one thing that Tennessee did not know, and that was that the opposition meant to wage a desperate and probably unscrupulous battle to prevent ratification in the 36th state. It knew that every weak man would be set upon by powerful forces and that every vulnerable spot in the campaign would be discovered and attacked in its vulnerability. It knew that the chances of success depended upon preparedness to the last buckle on the last strap. It was no easy task to arouse either men or women to comprehension of the dire need of the hour. All factions professed to stand for ratification. Both the National Democratic and the National Republican committees had urged the governor to call a special session and the legislature to ratify. Both Democratic and Republican national platforms had confirmed this request. Both Democratic and Republican state conventions had urged a special session and ratification. The legislature about to be called had extended presidential and municipal suffrage to women, and more than a majority of its members were pledged to ratification. Suffrage men were inclined to poo at any expression of doubt as to the result. Yet there was not long to wait before warnings against false security began to materialize. The opposition began its work with an old campaign device. In order that legislators might save their faces when they should repudiate their pledges, a plausible excuse must be found. Suddenly there appeared in the press and directly after in every street corner conversation the remarkable claim that those legislators who voted for ratification would violate their oath of office. It was held that though ratification might be legal if secured by the legislature, called into special session for the purpose, 
That fact did not free men from their oath to uphold the state constitution as it read, even if it included an invalid provision. Every wheel in the opposition machinery was set in motion to spread this idea and to fix it indelibly in the minds of Tennessee. The anti-suffrage press hammered it home in daily editorials. Anti-suffrage lawyers, surprisingly ignorant of the relation of the federal constitution to state constitutions, contributed further confusion to the situation by labored opinions on the inviolability of the oath of office. Men who had never been credited with political virtue came forward to warn legislators of the wickedness of voting for ratification under such circumstances. The Bar Association, in session, contained so many members who held this remarkable view that the Friends of Suffrage present did not introduce an intended resolution favoring ratification, lest it be rejected. With amazing docility, intelligent men fell into the trap, and for three weeks this device of the opposition threatened defeat of the amendment in this special session. It was obviously the first duty of suffragists to destroy this legal contention. An invitation to address a luncheon of the Kiwanis Club of Nashville gave the president of the National Suffrage Association an opportunity to discuss it. An excerpt was published in all leading papers of the state, and for the first time, the answer to the claim, which had already gained widespread and distinguished support, was put squarely before the people of the state. She said, Those who are urging that legislators who vote for ratification will be violating their oath to support the state constitution forget that every legislator takes an oath of loyalty to two constitutions. The oath is no more in support of one than of the other. In fact, the obligation to take an oath to support the Constitution comes from the Federal Constitution, Article 6, Section 3. The possibility of conflict between the two was foreseen in the Federal Constitution, Article 5, Section 2, declares that to be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. The legislator does not vote to nullify the Tennessee Constitution when he votes to ratify the federal suffrage amendment. Any part of a state constitution is already nullified when it conflicts with the federal constitution. His oath first supports the federal constitution, which is the supreme law of the land, and second, such portions of the Tennessee Constitution as are in agreement with the federal constitution, for all others, including the provision in question, would be held to be nullified and to all intents non-existent, should the question of their legality ever reach the Supreme Court. Committees were hurriedly appointed in all the chief towns and cities, and suffragists were given instructions to visit all influential lawyers and secure either an opinion upon the mooted point or their signature to an opinion on the question. When a legislator takes a joint oath to support the federal and the state constitutions, does he violate his own oath when voting in accord with the provisions of the federal constitution? As fast as these opinions were secured, they were printed by the favorable press. After a two weeks vigorous campaign in this direction, a large majority of the important lawyers of the state were publicly recorded against the assumption. A tour of the chief cities of the congressional districts was next planned and a hurry call issued to the local groups in each district to send their leaders forward for a conference with the state and national officers of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. There were public meetings, newspaper interviews, talks with political leaders, and a private conference with workers at each point. 
At the conferences, the pool of all legislators from the districts was carefully reviewed, and arrangements were made for deputations of constituents, or a succession of them, if needed, to wait on every member not already pledged to vote favorably on ratification in the special session. To every conference, the question was put, are there any known bribable legislators from your district? Sometimes the entire group ejaculated a name in unison, so well established with some legislators ill repute in this connection. The same question was put to all political leaders in private talk, and was often met by a surprised look of suspicion, to be quickly covered by an expression of canny determination not to reveal any names. However, further discussion usually secured the names. All such names were checked by a secret mark on the poll list. Several names were checked as bribable by eight different persons, each thoroughly acquainted with practical politics and each having given his opinion without the knowledge of the others. The women of Tennessee, alarmed by the unexpected development of hostility, and now understanding the false grounds for their belief in prompt action, laid aside their political differences and worked together in a manner worthy of imitation by the men of the state. The southern summer heat was merciless, and many legislators lived in remote villages or on farms miles from any town. Yet the women trailed these legislators by train, by motor, by wagons, and on foot, often in great discomfort, and frequently at considerable expense to themselves. They went without meals, were drenched in unexpected rains, and met with tire troubles. Yet no women faltered, and there was not a legislator who had not been visited by his women constituents before the legislature met. In many instances, members were visited by deputations of men or by joint delegations of men and women. Each day, the poll was corrected in Nashville as the reports of interviews were received by wire and by mail. Each day, the prospects were carefully estimated. Although several men under suspicion as bribable had signed pledges to vote for ratification, they were never included in the private estimate. It was intended to make the poll so safe that it would not be endangered if the bribable fell from it. The problem of arriving at an exact account of the A's and nays was embarrassed by the fact that ten vacancies existed and by the further fact that there was a question of the eligibility of certain members to serve at the special session since they had been appointed to public office after the regular session. Meanwhile, the need of added political influence was not forgotten. The Democrats having announced that the National Committee would meet in Columbus on July 19 in connection with the ceremonies of notifying Governor Cox of his nomination for the presidency, the National Suffrage Association appointed a committee of Democratic women to be present under the leadership of a director of the association who was also a proxy member of the committee. This committee presented a memorial from the association and made three definite requests. One, a resolution of endorsement, two, an expression from Mr. Cox, three, the appointment of a representative of the Democratic Committee to go to Tennessee and North Carolina to work for ratification. Representatives of the National Suffrage Association further advised the Democratic National Committee that suffragists were surfeited with resolutions and that what the women of the country desired was that the Democratic Committee should use its full power to bring about ratification in states like Tennessee and North Carolina and not content itself with the mere adoption of a resolution. All that was asked was done. The committee resolved its hope for a Tennessee ratification. Two Tennesseans were privately appointed as national representatives of the party to work for ratification, and candidate Cox gave a frank and urgent request for Tennessee's ratification. 
At his own request, two private conferences with the National Suffrage Association's committee were held, and he agreed that he would come to Tennessee on his campaign trip if needed to urge ratification. As an additional expression, he wired the president of the National Suffrage Association, I am gratified over the news that you are to remain in Nashville for the ratification campaign. It gives me added reason for expressing confidence that the Tennessee legislature will act favorably, which will greatly please the Democratic Party. The Republicans unexpectedly called their national committee to meet at Marion on July 21st in connection with their notification ceremonies. The National Suffrage Association thereupon hastily appointed a committee of Republican women and provided it with a memorial similar to that sent to the Democratic Committee and instructed it to make the same request. The committee passed the following resolution, resolved that it is the sense of the Executive Committee of the Republican National Committee that the Republican members of the Tennessee Legislature should be and hereby are most earnestly urged and requested by this resolution to vote unanimously for ratification of the Women's Suffrage Amendment in the special session of the Tennessee Legislature which is to be called and the chairman of the Republican National Committee is hereby authorized to communicate this resolution to each Republican member of said legislature. This was wired to each Republican member of the Tennessee legislature and confirmed by letter. The National Suffrage Association's committee then called upon Mr. Harding, who declared that he was ready to throw the full weight of his influence for ratification, and the news was sent broadcast by the many correspondents then in Marion. Mr. Harding also wired the president of the National Suffrage Association and gave the message to the press himself, I am exceedingly glad to learn that you are in Tennessee seeking to consummate the ratification of the Equal Suffrage Amendment. If any of the Republican members of the Tennessee Assembly should ask my opinion as to their course, I would cordially recommend an immediate favorable action. The opposition had been at work for several weeks upon a plan to defeat ratification by a solid Republican adverse vote on the ground that, should Tennessee ratify, the Democrats would get the credit. The rumor of this had been persistent and disconcerting. The action of the National Republican Committee at Marion and the endorsement of presidential candidate Harding checked that effort but did not eliminate it from the possibilities. Representative Fess, chairman of the National Republican Congressional Committee, now urged each Republican member of the legislature by telegram to join in a solid vote for ratification. Several state committee men and Harding clubs wired the Republican chairman of Tennessee, H. H. Clements of Knoxville, urging a solid vote for ratification. He publicly announced that he did so urge the Republican members of the legislature and added, I feel safe in pledging every Republican member of the Senate and House for the immediate ratification of the amendment. Later, the National Republican Committee sent a member, Mrs. Harriet Taylor Upton, to Nashville to join the Republican legislators in the counter campaign to secure a solid party vote for ratification. The combination of these influences secured nearly all of the Republican votes for ratification. Without them, ratification would have failed. Although the public announcement had been made a month before that the special session would be called for August 9th, the official call was not issued until August 7th. The ratification resolution went before the legislature with the strongest political support it had had in any state or at any time. The preparations were complete. When, on July 25th, the poll had shown a certain majority, the announcement had been given to the public, while deputations continued to visit the doubtful members and meetings were still held. 
A.L. Todd, presiding officer of the Senate, and Seth Walker, Speaker of the House, had agreed to introduce the resolution to ratify. Most of the best-known lawyers of the state, including the Attorney General, had given opinions not only upon the constitutionality of ratification by the Tennessee legislature, but upon the specific question as to whether men would violate their oath of office if they should vote for ratification, so that the argument which three weeks before had threatened to send the resolution to defeat had been largely eliminated from the field. The League of Women Voters, the Governor's Committee of Women, the Democratic Women's Committee, and the Republican Women's Committee had all been at last united under the leadership of Miss Charles Williams, Vice Chairman of the National Democratic Committee. With all these influences on the side of ratification and with a majority of the legislature pledged in writing to vote for ratification in the special session, the prospects to onlookers seemed uninterestingly obvious and the effort to accumulate further evidence of demand for the Tennessee ratification appeared to them a senseless waste of energy. Yet experienced suffragists faced the coming events with anxiety, and each congressional chairman to whose workers the legislators' pledges had been made was urged to be present when the legislature met. On Saturday evening, August 7th, the great foyer of the Hermitage Hotel was packed with men and women bedecked with suffrage yellow and anti-suffrage red, and the War of the Roses was on. The anti-woman had made an 11th hour attempt to show numbers and had brought women from all parts of the country, especially from southern states. All the women who had become familiar figures in anti-suffrage contests were there, and many more. Mysterious men in great numbers were there, taking an active part in the controversy, while in and out, through this crowded third house, moved to the bewildered legislators. End of chapter 30, part 1